Support for this podcast comes from Frito-Lay in the 2023 Snack Bracket Championship. The Frito-Lay Snacker Challenge is underway, and fans are voting on their favorite snacks to crown champion. We're talking about primetime matchups between the best 64 snacks in the land. Will Ruffles Ridges reign supreme? Can Doritos defend their dynasty? Or will Smart Food use their smarts for a surprise upset? Only you can decide. Get in on all the action for a chance to win up to $1,000 or a year's worth of snacks. Let your snacks be heard. Just go to Frito-LaySnackIt.SBNation.com to vote and enter for a chance to win. No purchase necessary. Threepstakes ends April 3rd, 2023. Void where prohibited. Years worth of snacks awarded in the form of 52 coupons, each good for one bag of chips. See official rules at Frito-LaySnackIt.SBNation.com. editor of Royals Review, and you're listening to Royals Review Radio. I have with me Sean Newkirk, my usual co-host. Sean, how are you doing tonight? Hi, good. Hi, audience. Also joining us is Matthew Lamar. Matthew, catching up on the draft, are you kind of uh, taking a break now? I I don't know. The draft is a lot. Like it's 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 just a lot. It keeps going and going, and there's like a thousand players, and I <laughs> and you know I can't imagine when it went to fifty rounds, like when Gerard Dyson got drafted. Like that's that's a lot. It's 40 rounds, and, and thank God that they actually go. I mean, just imagine if they took the pace of the NFL draft, which where they take like half an hour a pick. Uh, it would take literally a month to do the draft. So at least they go through it rather quickly, but it does, it's a three-day process, and they take three full days to do it. But uh, we'll summarize it, uh, at least from the Royals' point of view, so you don't have to go through all three days of the draft. Uh, and we'll talk a little bit, uh, little bit about the draft and also the, the last week of Royals baseball. But first... I did want to talk about uh, kind of the news of the, of the week, and that is the Royals have reportedly come to terms with second overall pick Bobby Witt Jr. According to reporter John Heyman, he has agreed to a full slot amount of $7.789 million, uh, the largest, that would be the largest bonus in Royals history and the second largest in Major League Baseball history behind the $8 million Garrett Cole received from the Pirates in 2011, although Adley Rutschman is, is probably going to at least come close or top that number this year. Uh, now, the Royals have not officially confirmed this, and, and uh, according to Mick Schaefer of 41 Sports, they're denying it for now, saying he still has to pass a physical, but it sounds like they've come to terms, and we could have Bobby Witt signed and, and at least uh, assigned to Royals uh, extended spring training in Arizona pretty soon. Sean, you seemed a bit surprised on Twitter that Witt got full slot. Um, what do you think was kind of the, the rationale behind that on the, from the Royals' point of view? Yeah, I mean, I I speculated a bit, and it's just pure conjecture. Um, but I just speculated that maybe the royal, maybe it's kind of that royals culture was the word I used, but culture wasn't the word I was really looking for. It's that kind of idea of like, um, it's hard to put. Obviously, you, you don't want to you don't want to build the culture just screwing your players over. But it's one of those like, you know what? Uh, the slot was this. We'll give them the slot. You know, we we want to be the, the org that does that. Um, and there's nothing wrong with that inherently. Um, it does limit your flexibility for other picks later. But I'm just assuming that they were just thinking like, this is the slot. Let's not worry about anything. Let's just you know wrap it up um, and give it to that. Um, obviously, they spoke with Witt Jr. before the draft even happened about what he would sign for. And obviously, Witt Jr. is going to be like, oh, I'm going to sign for slot. You know, the Royals say, hey, will you sign for slot? And he says, yes. He goes, okay. Um, and also part of that is because the slot was already so high, 7.7 million, as you mentioned, the second highest of all time. Um, it'd be tough for him to turn it down. You know, if it was like a $2 million slot or something, you know, that's, that's different, but like 
you know, he it was already so much to work with. What more could he be asked for? Whatever uh, Rushman's slot was, um, I think it's like eight point four or so. Um, it's he's not, you know, I, I don't think he was going to ask for that. So I think it was kind of a both sides, a mutual interest kind of thing. But also part of it was just like I don't think they wanted to mess around with it. I was surprised. I figured he would have gone for less, but uh, you know. And what's the reason why you thought he would have gone for less? Because uh, you know, you think he's a high school guy. He at least has some leverage. You could go to Oklahoma for a couple of years, come back in the draft. Like you say, he probably won't get a lot more, but at least it does give, give him a little bit of leverage. Of course, the Royals have leverage as well, too. With, you know, If they don't sign him, they get the number three pick next year. But what's kind of the rationale for, for thinking he would go under slot? Yeah, I mean, exactly that. I mean, historically, if you look at last year's draft, uh, other than uh, it, it was at least eight of ten. I think it was actually nine of ten. Um, I'm giving myself some some room here, but I think last year nine of the first ten picks, and it might have been all ten, um, signed for either exact slot or less. Um, the top two, I think they were ended up being pretty well under slot, uh, and so really the operation should be with the first few picks. Somewhere there's a range where it's no longer that, but within pick, I'd say probably pick one through five. Um, you should be offering the guy either exactly or maybe a little bit more um, than the, the, the next spot. So I think that you know you should have they should have offered Witt Jr. the third uh, the slot value for the third pick. You know, give or take a little bit more. Um, but I mean, it should have been an instant savings. I mean, like like you said, he wasn't going to go. He has that pressure of going to college, but it's like, does he really want to spend three years at um, Oklahoma? to move up one spot, maybe make, you know, without knowing what the bonuses are going to be, um, you know, Rushman's was 8.4, I think his was 7.7. So you're talking about, um, 500,000, give or take difference, or excuse me, 800,000, uh, difference. I mean, maybe let's just say three years from now, the number one slot is 10 million. Um, you know, yeah, it's 3 million. It's not an inconsiderable amount of money, but, I mean, does he want to risk seven point seven million or less than that? Even call seven million um, for three additional million in three years from now. With you know, he has everything to really lose and not much to gain, other than um, you know, obviously three million. Uh, so I just thought it made more the most sense. Like the Royals held all the the leverage, um, so that's why I was mostly surprised. Yeah, and I think you're right about the kind of. I, I know you don't want to use the word culture, but I think it is kind of a cultural thing. With the Royals, do you want to kind of be you know be right for their players and you know you you young kids may not remember this but the royals used to be known as a penny pinching club especially when it came to the draft and i think they've done they've wanted to kind of get away from that not let they're they're like free spending or anything like that but just that they're going to be fair to their players and offer them fair market and obviously you know signing a guy for full slot is going to be fair market so you know you look at the last couple drafts they've signed guys uh their first overall or first round picks pretty quickly i think uh singer signed a couple weeks after florida was done in the college world series nick prado signed i think the week after the draft and they both signed for a round slot so the royals i, I think they want to i don't think they really want to be seen as haggling with draft picks um you know be just because of they're a small market team and uh i think they don't want to you know i think they want to be seen as a an honest broker with some of these some of these players and bobby Woods, you know obviously a guy that they feel very strongly about and they love his intangibles and he's a guy that I think has the character that that they like to see a guy that's going to want to jump into his professional career right away. And I, you know, they, I'm, I'm sure they don't want to be the, the ones to stop him from doing that. You know, I did look back at some of the past bonuses in Royals history and it, you know, it does seem like the, 
if you look at the the high school guys, they definitely get the bigger bonuses. Like Eric Hosmer got six million dollars. Mike Mustakas had four million dollars a bonus. Of course, that was before the draft bonus pools. Uh, Bubba Starling also before the draft bonus pool got seven and a half million dollars, which until last week was the largest bonus in Royals history. And uh, you know, on the other flip, on the flip side of that, Christian Cologne, who's also a top five pick, got just two and a half million dollars. So that kind of gives you an idea of how much leverage like a high school kid has versus maybe a college kid. Um, you know, Matthew, do you have any thoughts about signing Bobby Wood for slot? I mean, it also maybe reflects the fact that they didn't necessarily see the need to maybe get savings later on in the draft to sign someone that was maybe falling in the draft. Yeah, I don't really think it's a big deal. I mean, it's it's certainly the easiest thing to do, right? Just like give him slot, get it done, just you know, get it over with and head on to his professional career. I mean, that makes a lot of sense. Um, but also, you're right. They, you know, and we'll get into this about the um, like what the draft class looked like. The Royals didn't really have any hard to sign guys other than wit. You know, they didn't go after one of those high school pitchers with, you know, huge signing bonus demands that just dropped. Um, you know, so I, it's, I don't think it's a big deal. Just, you know, get it done, get it over, get him into uh, Burlington or uh, Idaho Falls or wherever he starts just, you know, next week or two. You don't think that's oper See, I just kind of see it as operating as a disadvantage because Every other, uh, like the um, the Reds, the Reds had a really, I thought, I like the Reds draft. They took Tyler Callahan in the third, who was a hard to sign guy. But I think, uh, I like that. I, I think you're operating at, at a disadvantage because the Royals had the third biggest pool out of anybody. And they didn't really flex it for the most part. I mean, I, I don't think, it, you know, I don't think they could have gone, should have gone cheap up front, the second overall pick. Uh, but I, I do think that it's like, if you're just going to sign everybody kind of right where they're at, you, there's really no flexing of the pool there. Um, the Reds had a considerably smaller pool, and, and I think they got some better values um, when they took Lodolo at seventh and then Callahan at whatever it was, 90-whatever. Um, and so I just wish that they kind of flexed that muscle a little bit more. I think that's my big kind of complaint. Um, you know, nothing wrong with Junior at the top, but then it was like, okay – um, then they just started going after kind of guys, and it, for the most part, uh, as I'm looking at the signings, they made some uh, savings. It seems like they're going to spend um, Brady McConnell, the second overall pick at 44th. It sounds like they're going to second round um, pick. Yeah, second round pick. Yep, yeah, at 44th, uh, they're going to they're going to um, give him a bit of that. But it just, I don't know. It just seems like it's you. I, I really wanted them to kind of actually spend big. Um, given that they had the the draft capital to do it, and do you guys feel like they did that? And maybe maybe you don't share that same viewpoint, but it seems like they kind of just played it safe, bonus wise, right? No, I think you're, you're you're quite right. I mean, I think when you have such a big draft bonus pool like the Royals had, I mean, they had seven point seven million dollars with the number two pick. They had that competitive lottery pick, which is worth nine hundred thousand dollars. That gives you some cushion room to at least take some interesting opportunities. And there were definitely guys that slid down. You talk about the Reds. I was also looking at the Mets, who, you know, the Mets are a dysfunctional yeah. organization. But, you know, they went, they took a gamble on uh, day two of the draft in round three, I believe, with Matthew Allen, uh, yeah. that high school pitcher who's considered a first-round talent. And, you know, supposedly he's asking for 3 or $4 million. And maybe that's that's totally out of uh, whack and there's no, no way a team can meet that. But at least they took that shot. And, and maybe maybe the Royals figured, you know, maybe that's just way out of their price range. But there were some guys that did slide down. And, you you know, you, in that time between day one and day two of the draft, you can start to make calls and say, hey, look, what are you willing to sign for? How can we make that happen? And getting wit maybe a little bit under slot, maybe getting, um, you know, using that 
competitive lottery pick and signing like a, a college senior or some some really low um, you know bonus and using those savings somewhere else in the draft. Um, you know, I think that it's it's worth taking, especially when you're an organization that lacks high end talent like the Royals. Like a guy like you know, is it Allen or Alan? Um, you know, would certainly be a, a kind of high end. Um, uh, pitcher in the organization, and certainly they need pitching. So um, I, I wouldn't. I'm, I'm kind of like I'm kind of in the middle of both of you. I think um, I understand Matthew's point of view that like I I'm, I don't know if it's worth getting too upset about. It. I think they had a fairly good draft, um, but on the other hand, maybe they could have taken some more risks considering the state of their organization. Yeah, and I wonder if like they had a fairly good draft, which is uh, which I mean I, I think I mostly agree with um but I, I think that everybody i think the kind of big line for everyone is like oh yeah they had a, they had a good draft but i feel like a lot of that is just baked into uh wit jr and it's not like the choice was wit jr and a bunch and nobody or someone else and a bunch of kind of um hard to signs like later on i feel like no matter what scenario it was always going to be wit jr so it was like okay do we want wit jr and um, the kind of college crop that they took, or do we want Witt Jr. maybe go some underslot at two, at 44th overall and then 70th overall to get uh, a big pick at 80th, or you know a big pick at pick at 70th and go underslot at everything. So it feels like you know it, yes, oh, really the most important thing obviously is going to be the second overall pick, but uh, you know they had some ability still left over. So. Well, we talked a little bit about uh, day one of the draft last time, and you can always go back into, into our last episode and listen to a little bit of our thoughts about day one of the draft. Uh, but let's talk a little bit about day two and three of the draft. Uh, the Royals went pretty college-heavy. 35 of their 41 picks are college players. And, Matthew, you know, it seems like, you know, last year, of course, they went pretty college-heavy, especially with pitchers early in, the, early in the draft. Do you feel like this was a concerted effort or this is just kind of how the draft went? I think I think it's um, part of an actual concerted effort. You know, Alani Goldberg said that uh, they they didn't. Uh, let's see what what is the exact quote here? That they don't go in by design, um, and that's how it just plays out. And I I just I just don't believe them. I think the royal or the royals. You know. Um, after the 2017 draft, where they drafted uh, a couple of other guys in the top, you know, 10 rounds, a couple of high schoolers like uh, Charlie Newweiler, um, they drafted Prado and Melendez. Their sort of excuse now, which is, um, if, which if you read some stuff, is like, oh, it's so hard to sign high school guys after the first two rounds, you know, the first few rounds. And, you know, I don't, you know, you can sign some talented high school guys and give them decent money not amazing money and still get them if you want them right um i i think that it's it's a specific uh approach and i you know i think it's probably fair that the royals not uh you know give that away you know and say hey we want to do college guys now because you know everybody knows that um and that's just not good for leverage and scouting and that sort of stuff. Um, but yeah, I, I do think it's a concerted effort, um, especially like later in the later rounds, right? Like the other thing about signing high school guys is if you get these sort of fringe high schoolers who might not think that they have a chance, even if they go to college, you know, they're going to, they're going to sign, you know, in the later rounds, um, you know, every, every team has guys who sign, you know, from high school in the later rounds and they go and they play pro ball. So I, I don't think that the Royals main excuse that 
um, high school guys are hard to sign. Just has much water. I think it's just that. It's just an excuse. And if you look at it, I mean, like, you get 41 picks, um, and six of them are high schoolers. Like, that's that's an unbelievable number. And most of them just came in the last couple of rounds. Um, they're 36, 37, 39th and 40th pick were all high schoolers. So that leaves two high schoolers between rounds one and 35. That's, that's not an accident. That's something that they need to do. Now, whether or not this succeeds, you know, it'll be years until we really know this, but um, it seems to me that it's, it's a very specific strategy that they're, that they're going for here. And not only did they take college guys, but they took college pitchers. I mean, actually the breakdown is they took 23 college pitchers, 12, college position players, four high school hitters, and just two high school pitchers. And Sean, yeah, I think we've kind of talked about this in the past, but um, you know, the, it seems like if you're going to go college players, a lot of, I think a lot of the recent literature has been like, hey, go with college bats. The Royals went with college arms last year. They went with college arms this year. It sounds like this is kind of a weaker year for college arms. Am I wrong about that? Yeah, that's what um, I had noted a week or maybe not a week ago, but sometime last week, Keith Law had, had mentioned that explicitly, um, that it was kind of one of the weakest in the 18 years or whatever that he's been doing the draft or covering the draft in some capacity, whether it be with the Blue Jays or, you know, as an analyst for ESPN. Um, he has he said that it was the weakest and maybe it was being a little hyperbole. Maybe it's just one of the weakest, but he said it was the weakest. Um uh, college pitching drafts and um, I'm kind of of the opinion though that like when people look at like the talent level of a draft it's like really it's like okay if you want to say that this draft is really weak on college pitching it's like okay maybe you're really probably just talking about like Alec Manoa and Nick Lodolo like the kind of three or four guys up front that are the best quote-unquote best pitchers uh, best college pitchers I think everybody after that, it's kind of just, yeah, I don't think it really changes. I think really when you're talking about a strength of a draft, you're talking about the guys up front. And then after the first five guys or whatever, it kind of goes back to, you know, every draft is about the same. Um, so I, 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 Law did mention that it's one of the weaker pitching drafts, college pitching drafts, but the Royals didn't spend um, their draft capital early on. Uh, Alec Marsh was the first college pitcher they took, and he went 100 uh, or 70th overall. Um, and so, you know, it's not like they, you know, grab Nick Lodolo at one, two or something like that. Um, yeah, it was kind of weak, but I'm not sure that necessarily had a big impact on, on kind of the, the, the grading and the evaluation of the draft necessarily. Well, yeah. Yeah. And the Royals have started getting some of those guys signed too. It sounds like, uh, nine of the top 11, uh, draft picks have signed already. One of them can't sign yet. Cause he's, uh, it's still uh, Drew Parrish at. Florida State, uh, his team's still in the College World Series, so hopefully these guys can start getting into action. Um, are there maybe two or three guys from day two and three of the draft that stand out to you as, as either um, you know picks you think are really interesting at the Royals that could be you know, could have a future at the Royals, or maybe a pick that's kind of head scratching to you? Um, you know, Matthew, do you want to kind of start out with with a couple interesting picks from the Royal, late in the Royals draft? Yeah, I think. Yeah, just to preface this, I think that the the later rounds of the draft are kind of a crapshoot, um, and you know, uh, there's just so many players that what differentiates the 499th pick from the 498th pick is, you know, maybe not much at all. Uh, but a couple of guys that I am sort of intrigued by are um, 
pitchers Noah Murdoch and Justin Hooper. So both of them are really gigantic pitchers. They're both six foot eight inches, which is, you know, a couple of inches away from Chris Young sized. Um, and both pitchers are kind of similar. They had in coming out of high school, you know, uh, mid nineties fastballs. Um, and then they had Tommy John surgery and they lost some of their um, oomph off of those pitches um, and are sort of still returning from it. So I think that's a really interesting thing. We talk about in terms of uh, buying and trading uh, or trading players, you know, and acquiring players to, to buy low, right? You don't want to buy when somebody's, uh, somebody's high. And Sean can certainly speak to this in terms of financial uh, stock market and stuff. You know, you want to buy when guys are at their low stock. So, you might get something that's good in the future. And I think that's exactly what the Royals did in these two pitchers. You know, they could have picked two healthy guys, but instead they picked two guys who are, you know, really tall and, um, you know, in pitching that, that matters because their arm, you know, the release point is closer to the plate, which to the batter means that um, the pitcher feels faster to them. Um, and, I think that's a really interesting strategy to specifically go for a couple of guys who are kind of similar in, in that vein and to just gamble that, you know, your medical staff is probably better than, you know, University of Virginia or whatever. Um, that's where Noah Murdoch is from, for instance. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that's, that's, um, there's a lot of guys that you could talk about, but those two are really interesting to me and I, I will be keeping an eye on them to see, you know, what happens going forward. Sean, who are your your notable Royals draft picks from day two and three? Um, I know a lot of folks like Michael Massey um, out of University of uh, Illinois. Um, he had that back injury. Uh, I know, like some some things that I've seen. One person I I kind of talked to, um, he said that the back injury was kind of over over. Um, overhyped or hype's the wrong word but kind of overplayed um he downplayed it a little bit and he said that's not that big of a deal um but then i've read like i know fan graphs um had a mention on it saying it was kind of a big deal to them um so it's kind of back and forth reports on it but um i know michael massey's a guy uh that people kind of are looking around um kind of a nicky lopez-esque where it's like um you know good defender uh good college production when he played um Lopez wasn't injured, but you know Massey was. But um, when he was playing, um, not much power. Okay, runner um, could maybe play some short. So I think I think that's going to be one that a lot of people look at. Um, I like Drew Parrish a little bit as well. Um, of the guys taken for the Royals, he at least had the best changeup uh, that got graded out. Um, and of course, he you know pitches for Florida State, and Florida State is a remarkably good team this year. Um, supposedly one of the best teams, one of the best college teams in, in a long time. Uh, so uh, you know, just being on that team uh, gets you at least some cred. I know that's a bit of an appeal to authority, but still, it's uh, uh, Parrish is, is interesting. So I think those two, um, Parrish doesn't have like like elite kind of stuff. You know, like where he's just going to blow it by you. He's kind of more of a pitcher's pitcher, kind of a Chris Bubik um, mold in that case. But, uh, you know, of the pitchers the Royals took, it sounds like uh, Parrish has the best changeup. So that that's that intrigues me always. And I'll go with, uh, you know, I think Matthew put it correctly. I mean, a lot of these guys are kind of crapshoots, you know, after round 10, really. Um, so if you're getting anything out of them, it's it's probably a pretty good thing. I, I agree with what Matthew said about Hooper. I think... I like taller pitchers that um, have some velocity. And he had Tommy John surgery, so I think, um, you know, you could look at it two ways. One, he's a there's a big red flag. 
um, that he could get hurt again and his career could be, you know, pretty in, in pretty serious jeopardy. On the other hand, he had a red flag and teams stayed away with him, stayed away from him, and he could be a value at round 14. So, um, you know, this, if the Royals can keep him healthy um, and he can kind of pick up that velocity again, uh, he could be kind of intriguing. Um, I kind of like uh, Tyler Tolbert. His numbers weren't great at Alabama, Birmingham. Uh, he's an infielder, uh, but he has he has great speed, and the Royals love speed. It actually didn't seem like as heavy a speed of uh, as heavy a draft class in speed for them as like past years, but but Tolbert certainly brings that kind of speed. He stole 41 bases for the Blazers, um, and he could, seems like he could walk a little bit. Uh, at the college level, we'll see if that translates to the professional level as well. But um, he certainly could fit in as like the DJ Burt kind of um, you know utility infielder that can steal bases at the minor league level. And we'll see if that can get get him to the big leagues as well. And then uh, one last name is uh, Dante Biasi, who is the brother of Sal Biasi, who the Royals took a couple years ago, left-handed pitcher out of uh, Penn State. Uh, and I kind of like uh, you know he's got pretty good strikeout numbers. Uh, he, comes at you at a little over arm angle so he could be you know maybe a situational lefty if it doesn't work out as a starter so that i think has some value so a couple names that hopefully one of the, you know one or two of those names can come through and the royals can get something out of this draft uh, overall sean what was kind of your impression of the royals draft class is there you know i know some people i seem people seem to be fairly positive but but maybe you know as you say maybe that comes a lot of that comes from bobby witt being at the top of that draft yeah i, th- I think that's really it um I don't think they took anybody after Wit necessarily, and obviously, you know, as we all know, I mean, the value always lies in the first round. Um, mm-hmm. You know, obviously, teams can find players, you know, Whit Merrifield types that end up being good eventually. Um, but really, the the value of like this is what we, this is how you can kind of grade the draft a bit. A lot of that comes in the first round, um, and I, you know, the Royals played it fairly chalk in the first round, just kind of stuck with um, who everybody expected them to, the universal lock. Um, and, uh, that's, that's really where, uh, that's really where the value for this draft lies for the Royals. Um, I've said that this is going to be a development on uh, this, this draft for them, at least with this pick, the second overall with Witt Jr. is going to be an outcome of not selection where, um, if you look back to Bubba Starling's a great example, 2011, uh, where the Royals had a bunch of choices on their board. They kind of got taken, um, but then, you know, the Royals had their choice between, was it Rendon and Starling, yeah. right? That was the Rendon draft. Um, With Francisco Lindor. After, I mean, who wasn't yep. even considered at that pick? But, yeah, there's other guys like Francisco exactly. Lindor. Pretty loaded draft at the top of that draft. Yeah, or even Christian Colon. Yeah. Uh, the Christian Colon draft is a good one, too, where those were drafts, I think, of more selection. Um, Starling was a very, very good draft prospect. Um, but, you know, a lot of people kind of had flags on him. Um, and that was really a, a draft excuse me, of selection where it's like, okay, we have to make sure we're selecting the right guy. Um, I think that this, this draft, at least with Witt Jr., I mean, you really had, uh, you knew they weren't going to get Rushman, so you had Vaughn and you had Witt Jr., and you could kind of say J.J. Blade if you wanted to, but really it was Vaughn or Witt Jr. Um, and, you know, either one of them would have been fine picks, worked exact, you know, they were the consensus, consensus next guys after Vaughn. Uh, and so, you know, either one of the two. So this is going to be about development. Um, every draft is about development, but this one more so because it wasn't, you know, sign and develop. It wasn't Mike Moustakis or Josh Vitters. You just had to pick the right one and development. This one is like, OK, you know, they took the guy that everybody was expecting that probably most teams would have taken second overall as well and now develop him. Uh, so that's that's kind of how I feel about the draft. If That makes sense. Yeah, I think we kind of made that point last week, too. It's, you know, this is kind of the no brainer pick and. 
you know, five years or ten years from now, when we look back in this draft and Witt somehow isn't a, a pretty good major leaguer, you can't really fault the Royals for picking him. If anything, you you would at that point fault them for not developing him. But yeah, it seemed right. like he was just kind of the, that. That's the guy they have to take at number two. And, and also looking back on this draft class too, if, if you get a, a solid starter and a like a nice bullpen piece, that's out of the forty-one guys you took, that's a pretty good draft. <laughs> it's, that's kind yeah. of par for the course. If you get two starters out of it, that's a that's a super great draft. And if you get like a superstar out of it, then then you've really hit it out of the park. You know, if if Witt becomes a superstar, but the other forty picks never be, reach the big leagues, that's a pretty darn good draft. I mean, that's that's yeah. really all you can hope for. So, uh, yeah, it'll be interesting to see how this draft comes out, uh, and we'll look back in five years from now and see uh, how the Royals did. Hopefully, we'll look back fondly upon the 2019 draft as the one where the Royals, uh, you know, started to turn things around. Well, let's turn a little bit towards the big league club because they're still playing, by the way. Uh, not very well, though. It seems like frustrations are starting to mount a little bit with this club. Sam Millinger of the Kansas City Star last week wrote about how the team is just doing so much worse than everyone in the front office expected. Even the ana- analytics department pegged them at 70 wins. And while they didn't ex- exactly expect to compete, they had hoped to be a little more competitive than last season. And right now they're on a pace to lose even more games as a terrible 2018 season. Uh, he writes that the season is, is being has been mind-blowing and even mentioned the possibility that they have discussed uh, firing or removing one of the coaches. I don't think he means Ned Yost necessarily, but uh, perhaps someone on the coaching staff. And Matthew, you wrote a little bit about uh, this week about how this kind of bad season or this terrible of a season usually results in someone losing their job. Um, do you? Is that something you see happening with the Royals? And are there any candidates you had maybe thought about as maybe that person could actually lose their job if the Royals continue to, to flounder throughout the summer? Yeah, I mean, you think of um, so the the way that I let off the article is is the um, uh, film masterpiece National Treasure. Um, there's a line in it. Um, you know, obviously Nicolas Cage's character steals the Declaration of Independence. Spoiler for a 15 year old film. Um, but he steals it, and at the end, you know, after they find the treasure, the FBI agent is like. You know, somebody's got to go to prison. You know, you, you don't just get to accidentally, or not accidentally, you don't, you don't just get to, like, get to steal the Declaration of Independence and have no consequences for it. Um, you know, it's too big of an action for them, for there not to be negative consequences. And I I sort of view that the royals are kind of in the same position, obviously, without, you know, stealing the Declaration of Independence. But, uh, you know, losing or going on pace for 112 losses you know, the year after you go 104 losses, which is, you know, really sort of unacceptable if you're Dayton Moore, right? I mean, he didn't trade any of the big names uh, like Salvador Perez or Merrifield or Danny Duffy. He kept all those guys around to try to be competitive. They weren't. Then, you know, maybe it's, okay, maybe it's a, you know, a fluke. Um, but it turns out it's, it's you know, not a fluke. The Royals are really this bad. Um it's I, I I feel someone's just someone's someone's gonna get fired. It's you just the consequences of being this bad for this long are you just can't avoid it. Someone's gonna get fired at some point. So you know whenever that that happens, there are three people who get uh, singled out: uh, the manager, the pitching coach, and the hitting coach. And we saw the Royals can the hitting coach in what was it 2013 when they when George Brett was hitting coach for a hot minute interim hitting coach for a hot minute. So I think that's that's most likely is pitching or hitting coach. So, um, 
and the hitting has been, and the hitting's been pretty good. So I, I, it seems unlikely that I think Terry, I mean, really good in relative terms, and you know, right? They've been about close to a league average offense. Uh, they've had some slumps lately, uh, but the pitching I think obviously seems like the biggest uh, weakness on this club. And I think we mentioned this a little bit before about Cal Eldred, uh, and I, I guess I'm always really wary of judging pitching coaches and hitting coaches by like the total you know team totals like you can't just look at the era and say well the pitching coach has done a good job or a bad job because it just it seems to me like there's so much more that goes into it than that like and he's only in his second year too but you know was he really given that much talent to work with like it's like the Royals gave him glenn sparkman and homer bailey and said okay go to work and it's like what's he gonna do with that and i know like brad keller has regressed a little bit but you know i think sean has pointed out a couple of times we kind of expected him to regress. I mean, he was a 22-year-old who didn't strike out a ton of guys last year. And, uh, you know, he was pretty good, but some of that was probably a little bit lucky. And he's probably a little closer to his what his true talent level is. And, and I think he can be a little bit better than this, but he's probably not like the number two or number one that maybe some exuberant fans were looking at, uh, you know, a year ago. So I'm not too surprised by that. And the rest of the guys, like, there's, there's not a lot there to deal with. Um, and, and, and even if, if, you know, if there was like it, the pitching coaches, you know, they work with guys, they, they, they tinker, they refine, they work on grips, you know, some guys will find a grip and, and, and they'll, and, and it'll just totally changes their career. Like Mike Scott, you know, learn the, the, the fork ball from Roger Craig and turn into a totally different pitcher. Uh, and then some guys, you know, and some guys don't listen at all, or some guys just aren't any good, or some guys can't, can't improve upon themselves. Now, I do think that it's changing a lot with analytics. You know, guys like Brian Bannister working on spin rate, uh, using some of the some of the modern devices to kind of, you know, break down a guy's delivery. But I, I just – it's hard for me on the outside to look at just their ERA or their FIP or whatever and say, well, they're not good, so let's fire Cal Eldred. That being said, I mean, sometimes it just happens. Like, like you said in your article, I think – people are going to ex- expect a scalp i think for this terrible not just a terrible season but back-to-back bad seasons i don't think it's going to be ned yost i think he's got the job as long as he wants it i don't think it's gonna be terry bradshaw because i think the hitting has been better than people expected and so that you do kind of look at the pitching coach and say well is this is this kind of where we're not making progress and and this is going to at least satiate the fan base or at least send a message to everyone that we're not going to be complacent or we're not going to, you know, accept these results. Uh, I don't know, Sean. Do you have any thoughts about shaking up the coaching staff, or or how bad this team is, and and I guess in a bad way exceeded the expectations of the front office? Yeah, I mean, like you and I had the quote unquote pessimistic, like of the team, of the Worlds Review team, uh, yeah. the projection at sixty nine wins, and it, we might fall short of that. Um, we can work so, for the yeah. Royals Analytics Department because they projected 70 wins. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, and so, like, you know, and, and I think we were banking on um, – not banking on, but I think we were expecting, like, okay, you know, the, the pitching staff isn't going to be as aw- – isn't going to be this awful. Uh, you know, Merrifield's been fine, but he – you know, he's not been as kind of great as he was um, last season. I'd be surprised if he puts up five wins again. Um, Mondesi, I think – has I'm pulling up right now. I think so. Last year, Monesey was worth 2.8 wins and 291 PAs. 
this year he's at 1.9 and 281. So he's 10 PA shy of last year, and he's one full win shy of where he was. Um, so he hasn't quite kept up that pace. And I thought that you know um, we we might have figured he'd be a little better than that. Um, so I think there's just been some of it's been kind of. Uh, unexpectedly bad but also it's also they've also been kind of expectedly bad um so you know i don't think anybody's gonna i don't know if anybody gets fired for it um you know i don't think you're right i think you're right it's not gonna be ned yost it won't be dayton moore um it could be bradshaw or eldridge but it's you know i'm kind of of the opinion that like the coach the pitching coach and the hitting coach don't really do that much unless it's like ray searage teaching um you know, fastballs up or it's, uh, what's his name with the Mets, um, Dan Warthen teaching sliders to everybody. I mean, unless a guy has like a thing you can really say, oh yeah, he's teaching people this, um, as opposed to just kind of keeping them in line and maintaining them and fixing stuff that pop up, I, you know, I, I, it's hard to put fault on them. So I'm really not sure anybody's going to lose their job, but, um, yeah, in order of safety, you know, it's more than it's Yost. Um, and then it's, you know, probably one of Eldridge and, um, uh, the hitting coach whose name I just said, but now I'm blanking on it. Uh, Gary, Gary Bradshaw. Gary Bradshaw. Hall of yeah, Fame so. quarterback. Yes, yes, right. <laughs> well, it's interesting. You, you talk about, you know, pitching coaches that are kind of known for, tink, for you know, teaching guys things because Eldred is following up Dave Island, who I think maybe wasn't on the par of, with Ray Searage or, or uh, uh, Cooper in Chicago or uh, Dan Worthen, but he's, you know, I think he's considered pretty well thought of in, in Major League Baseball. And, and there were a lot of stories about him working with Ian Kennedy on his release point or. Uh, working another guy with his grip, and and so Aldridge's following that up, and I don't think we've seen we haven't seen those kind of stories yet, and maybe it's happening, and we're just not seeing those stories, or you know maybe he's still getting acclimated to the job, or he's learning his personnel, or whatever, but 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 I think following up Island, you know, not that Island is like the you know Leo Mazzoni or anyone like that, but he is pretty well considered, and I think Royals fans really appreciate the job he did here, and to kind of follow that up. Um, you know, it's kind of like you know, everyone that's followed up Kevin Seitzer, who was a fan favorite as a hitting coach, has kind of you know, everyone, everyone's uh, kind of compared that coach to Seitzer, and I think the same thing is going to happen with Island. Island was well thought of to follow him up as a tough act, and so Elder, I think, is going to have to get results. I think before too long. I don't know if it's going to happen this year, though. Um, going back to the hitting, you know, I talked about the hitting being kind of league average. I think the one thing that we have noticed recently is they're, they're striking out a ton lately. Um, but even with those strikeouts, they're still about league average striking about 23% of the time. I mean, like everyone strikes out a lot, but it did seem like, you know, going up against like the Adrian Sampson's of the world that the team is just whiffing and, and Matthew, like, is that something that we can put on Bradshaw? Is that just modern baseball? Um, you know, what can be done about all these whiffs? Yeah, I mean, some of that is just how it is now. I mean, league average, like you said, league, league average striker right this year is 23, 24%. So if you judge, excuse me, if you judge it by that, like 24% or whatever it is, uh, Hunter Dozier's below average, Alex Gordon's below average, Merrifield's below average, Billy Hamilton even is at or below average about, uh, Maldonado's below average, Lopez certainly is, Gallagher, um, even Ryan O'Hearn, who strikes out a lot, is just a tick above average. Um, so I think mostly it is just, um, you know, it's a lot different than it used to be even five years ago. Strikeouts are just going up every every year. I think that there are a couple of um, uh, troubling developments. Um, most, uh, or the first one is, is he striking out 27%? You know, that's 
that's a lot um, when you're only walking at 5%, right? If you're striking out at 27%, or for instance, in the case of Ryan O'Hearn, he's striking out at 25.4%, just a little over a quarter of the time. But he's also walking 12%, you know, so that's pretty good. Montezzi's striking out a lot and he's not walking a lot, so that that's kind of a red flag for, you know, does he really have a good command of the strike zone? Um, and, uh, you know, that's, that's, that's not great to see, you know, a, what is that? Five, five and a half to one strikeout to walk ratio. Um, and the other one is Jorge Soler, who's at just under 30%, which, um, again, is not that problematic, except he's only walking 6% of the time, um, which is below his, league average or not his league average excuse me his career average by about three percentage points um that's that's kind of a a big deal there so it's sort of a two-parter i think there are a couple of specific individual cases mondesi and solaire that are a little bit troubling but overall the strikeout rates are just you know you're not going to have a team that strikes out what the 15 team did which is 15.9 percent as a team which is you know just way under what your average strikeout rate is today. Like way, 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 way under, um, you know, those, those days are, are gone. And just, just to, um, as an illustration on how much more people strike out now in 2015, the, the club that struck out the most was the Chicago Cubs at 24 and a half percent, which is right around league average today, a little better, but right, right about there. So it's just, it's just gotten out of hand. Um, and whether if you think that's a bad for baseball is one thing, but uh, it's a, it's certainly a lot higher than it used to be. The um, Fangraphs has their now K percent plus, like pluses and WRC plus, the, the above or below average. Uh, the Orioles have minimum of, what did I do, 50 plate appearances. Um, so this includes Chris Owen, so if you excluded him, um, but I am including him here. Seven guys have a K percent plus above league average, which is worse than league average in this case. Six guys below. So if you get rid of Chris Owens, it's six above, six below. Um, so it's pretty much, you know, kind of um, even half, you know, bouncing each other out, really. Um, so it's not quite I, to Matthew's point. Exactly. It's just it's tip. It's basically just the rise in strikeout rates. Plus having Jorge Soler being, you know, kind of really out there this year um, it's been, been an issue and then Kelvin Gutierrez striking out a lot so you know it, it's it's some guys who are way above and it seems like Ryan O'Hearn stop me if I'm wrong but it seems like Ryan O'Hearn strikes out a lot more than he actually does right I feel like every time I see him he's striking out but 25% that's not outrageous uh, it's not Chris Carter level you know and it is interesting like the Royals are talking about zigging where other teams zag and you know, they're using speed where other teams are using more power. And, of course, the Royals are actually hitting a decent amount of home runs, although I guess they're still in the top, the bottom five of the league, but more than, I guess, uh, in past years. But they haven't really, um, aside from that 2014-15 kind of teams, they haven't had, like, super high-contact teams. Like, that's – it seems like as strikeouts rise, that would be a, a place where they could maybe go against the market a little bit and find high-contact guys or at least develop high-contact guys. And aside from, like, you know, Nicky Lopez being a high-contact guy in the minors, uh, you know, we haven't, you know, it's, he's been, uh, you know, a little bit above average high in contact in the major league level. Uh, but aside from that, they really haven't developed or acquired uh, players that are really good at making contact. Uh, and then, and certainly if you look at their minors, um, there's there's uh, super high strikeout rates from some of the top prospects like Khalili and uh, MJ Melendez and Suli Mataya. So, 
um, it's interesting that, that there hasn't been more, maybe more organizational uh, emphasis on that. But um, but you know maybe that's that maybe they realize that power is actually important and they're just trying to give lip service to speed and defense uh, until that power comes. So uh, we'll see. Uh, you know, I, I wonder. Th- I wonder if. Um, and and maybe this is wrong. I, I I'm just throwing this out. I haven't done any research, but I'm looking at the X the the plus stats percentage um, on Fangraphs. They have only two people, Maldonado and Montesi, with a pull percentage noticeably above league average. Everybody else, everybody else is noticeably below league average. Um, uh, basically, uh, as in most people are going opposite field. Um, which seems to kind of jibe with that idea that, you know, maybe that's why they're not hitting for as much power necessarily uh, is because they've got all the people going opposite field. Uh, but, of course, some of that is, you know, you've got Nicky Lopez and Cam Gallagher, um, guys who, you know, pulling the ball is not going to do that much use for them to begin with. Um, same thing with, like, Billy Hamilton. Um, but still, I think it's – that's just something I randomly noticed that, yeah, I mean, they they don't have a lot of guys pulling the ball um, at high rates. Most guys are just kind of going opposite fielder up the middle. And that that's a common teaching philosophy kind of with the older school types is, um, as Rex Heather will say, a nice level swing, which – isn't typically what you want, but that's kind of the old the old school kind of hitting philosophy there. You know, up the middle, opposite way. Sounds like that could be a future Sean Newkirk article at Royals Review. Uh, yeah. <laughs> well, that'll do it for us this week. I want to thank Sean and Matthew for being on, and uh, thank you for listening to Royals Review Radio. And we'll talk to you again next week. Hey!